Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. This one is episode 179, recorded on May 26th of 2023, uh, the Photo Geekery Show, where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and I find some stories to talk about, to geek out over in the photo industry over the past week. And with me is usually a guest host. And the most frequent guest host returns to this episode. I've got my very good friend, Steve Brazel, in the co-pilot seat today. Steve, how you doing, man? Howdy, howdy, howdy. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I was uh, in the uh, proverbial green room, I was saying just before this recording, I was out picking cherries from our cherry tree. It is that time of the year again. And uh, the warm weather and the yard work and the fruits of our labor and such uh, keep me outdoors a little bit more frequently. And I don't mind that one bit. That is, it's not only literally food, but it's food for your soul too, to, to be out in, in nature. And uh, I mean, we're in a village. It's quiet. It's peaceful. There's uh, trees and birds and everything everywhere. And uh, there's a bit of serenity, I think, involved in that. Uh, how about yourself? Those, uh I'm not picking cherries. And I will say for those people that are not following Don on Twitter or whatever social media is of your choice, it's worth following Don for the food pictures in his crazy oven. <laughs> if for nothing else, you, your food will actually, it won't taste better because you'll be looking at Don's food thinking, man, mine doesn't look like that. But you should follow Don for that reason. I'm doing really good. Just getting ready to uh, head on a trip. We're doing Scotland and Ireland for three weeks, and uh, so this is uh, this is going to be the last podcast I do for a couple of weeks. So speaking about food, I've got a uh, a beef tenderloin that was marinating for twenty four hours, and is now in a uh, a sous vide, uh, going up on about twenty hours as we record this. That will uh, then be uh, seared in the wood fired oven afterwards to finalize it. And this will be basically like pulled beef. Uh, it's just going to be falling apart. I don't even know if I'm going to successfully sear it because it's just going to be kind of like a, a mush. Uh, and then the feeling is do some flatbreads, like a nan bread, uh, and have like nan bread tacos with this pulled beef. It's been sous videing for uh, hopefully 24 hours by the time I get hungry enough for it. So, and, uh, and for those people that have never done sous vide, I love sous vide. Sous vide is cooking in a water bath at the temperature you would theoretically eat that that protein at, and it is just one of the most amazing ways to cook. Uh, I do like swordfish or mahi mahi for me, and I'll do salmon for my wife in the sous vide, and then you put it in a cast iron skillet, and you'll just sear each side, and it's amazing. Well, and, and the thing about sous vide is, and not to make this a, a cooking show, but maybe I should start a cooking podcast now that I think of I'm it. I'm in. Um, you've got, um, you said the water bath, and that's accurate, but it's in a vacuum sealed pouch in the Correct. water bath. And um, so you could put in a marinade and all the juices and everything stay right inside. Nothing is able to escape from that environment. Now, when you're cooking meat, uh, if you were to cook a steak to well done, it can taste like a rubber boot, like the texture is just not there when you do it quickly. But if you do that over a long period of time, um, the the fats will liquefy and render out into tallow in the case of beef. Um, but the collagen will break down over time. And it does take a long amount of time for that to happen. So then that's where you've got this sort of molecular transformation of the food 
into something that is much different than just slapping a steak on the barbecue and, uh, and, and, and not saying that that's a bad thing, but this is a different chemistry thing when it comes down to it. Yeah, I, I've got so much to say about sous vide. It, it's the most <laughs> moist protein you will ever have because those juices can't escape. And a good example is if you ever go to a restaurant and you get a two-inch thick filet that's gray on the outside because you ordered it medium rare and it's medium rare in a circle on the inside, it's because they didn't sous vide it. They cooked it on something. And to get the middle to medium rare, the outside gets warmer. That doesn't happen in a sous vide. The entire thing cooks to the temperature you want it to end up at, which might be, you know, 135 for, uh, you know, beef or 123 for, for fish or 155 for chicken. But it's just an amazing way to, to uh, cook. Well, and, and it's not perfect uh, because you don't get a Maillard reaction with a sous vide cook because you don't get temperatures that pass beyond the threshold of 100 degrees Celsius, the boiling point of water. Um, and typically at around 120 to 160 degrees Celsius, I'm not sure what the Fahrenheit equivalents are, but you're beyond uh, water's boiling point. You have a chemical reaction on the surface of your food that will cause uh, the, the chemistry to break down and change and cause the food to brown and change color. And it adds a lot of flavor to it, which is why, as you mentioned, uh, as I did as well, you try to sear it afterward to reintroduce right. the Maillard reaction that is not present within the sous vide process. And again, this could be a whole podcast on its own. Oh, yeah. And, and, and in fact, your, your beef can come out looking somewhat unusual even though it's completely cooked, because we're not used to seeing it that way. We exactly. should do a food podcast. That'd be fun. That could be fun. I could I could do a whole episode on sous vide, a whole episode, uh, episode or multiple on cast iron cookware and the like. But we're here for photography. And uh, I've got a bunch of stories picked out for this episode. Steve has uh, had time to formulate his opinions on it. The first one kind of comes in two parts, um, both reported on by Petapixel. Uh, if you've been following the news, you've probably seen this and seen people experimenting with it. Uh, Photoshop's new, quote, generative fill uses AI to expand or change photos. And a second part to the story, which we'll probably talk about in an intertwining way, Google's AI product studio removes the need for, quote, expensive photographers. So let, let's let's dig dig into this here. What is... Uh, generative fill. Well, it's using the technology that Adobe has been building behind the scenes in its uh, Firefly uh, technology, which I was kind of proud of Adobe for their approach on Firefly because it wasn't using uh, scraped images off of the internet. It was using from their own Adobe stock, people that had uh, given permission specifically to have their images used in the learning algorithms. And it so I guess a bit more ethical. And now it's finally getting... I guess it's workflow integration into Photoshop and the demo uh, that I've seen and, and the images that you can find in the Petapixel article, I'll link to, of course, on photogeekweekly.com, I think is impressive, but also scary. I mean, it's so good with the right prompts, obviously, and the right art direction from the person that is providing the prompts, that it is bending reality a lot farther than I would have expected since we just started talking about AI at the beginning of this year with any seriousness. Steve, what do you think? So the first thought that hit me when I read this article, well, actually, the first thought that hit me was the examples that they give 
really are shockingly good, like way better than I kind of expected because they're taking portrait orientation shots of a mountain range with a lake with boats in it. And they decide that they want to make it landscape orientation. That's standard four, three type orientation and, uh, or, you know, two, two, uh, two, three orientation. And it's got to fill all that information in and it does it with reflections and trees and sky. And it is shocking what it does. My, my first thought was when is reality not real? Because yeah. you're taking something that is a completely real, actual photograph and Photoshop, at least in these examples, in the beta version, is creating reality because it matches yeah. the reality. It will match perspective. It will match lighting. It will match style. And Russell Brown does a video on it. Russell Brown is one of the guys who has been creating Photoshop from pretty much day one, a brilliant photographer in his own right, an upcoming guest actually on my show. And his example with, if you go look at the article on Petapixel, his example with the salt flats, and he adds a car and he adds a, a reflecting pool in it. What it does to the reflecting pool was awesome. The car, on the other hand, I don't think that the lighting and the shadows, it looked dropped into me. Well, it right now, like not a perfect composite to me. Well, and, and you can see some of that as well. You know, there's a, I think it's an elk, some type of deer-like creature um, in a forest. And it gets transported into a, uh, a, a an urban alleyway. And right. in and further demos, they, it's not in this article, but I saw where they add in a little arrow sign up on the wall and that just kind of seamlessly blends in. And you can circle and modify and change anything within this generative AI. I've seen scenes that are just a landscape with no water in front where say, hey, give me a shoreline and boom, there's a shoreline and it looks believable. It, when this technique is used in a less dramatic fashion, uh, it is more believable. Uh, in the article, there's an example with a sand dune and somebody with a red cloak with a, a long draping cape, uh, you know, blowing in the wind. And the footprints are kind of distracting because it doesn't feel like just a lone person. There's a ton of foot traffic that has been there previously. And the generative fill changes all of that to make it look far more simplistic to be um, sort of a, a sand dune that would have generated over time based on all of the, uh, the textures there and one set of footprints running alongside it that seems slightly more... Uh, I don't know, uh, beautiful, I guess, is the word that I'm looking for, but it's not real. It's what the uh, the creator of the image would have wished that scene to look like had they had the proper scenario, but were not able because it just wasn't there. So then the generative fill is able to modify reality in a way that suits their original creative intent. And that's where I that come down picture, to... yeah, That picture, the one with the sand, was what made me really kind of not happy with the article or with what Adobe is sharing is probably a better way to word it in that I want to know what prompt they used and they didn't share the prompts with the examples. What this prompt did they use to say, you know, they selected the area with the, with the original footprints, which looks like you're on a beach. I mean, it's, it looks like that kind of sand by the right. time the generative generative AI is done it looks like a sand dune, wind blowing. 
very few footprints. What did they do to create that? And the other one was the flower. The flower one actually yeah. kind of blew me away. It's nothing but a close-up at 45 degrees of an open flower, and the AI created an entire mountain scene out of it that's it's not great. But it's no, but, but still, it it is shocking, and reality I think is going to be affected greatly by this type of uh, generative AI in the future. Uh, you know, I, I wrote in the the notes: Are we going to go kind of back to the the sanctity of the raw file, right? Where you want to prove something is real, then you've got the raw file from the camera as a sort of pseudo proof of, of, of there being a version of this image out of camera that, yes, you may have done your massaging and modifying yourself, but it's not to the degree where things have been dramatically changed. And I've entered some photo contests where they've asked me for the raw file uh, as part of the vetting process to ensure that the final image was actually captured. And I think that's going to be more and more commonplace, if not the de facto standard. That being said, the, the due diligence of checking a raw file is not what you're going to do for every image you see coming across social media, you know, whether you're browsing the explore page on Flickr, how do you know how many of those amazing images are actually real versus something that's been modified in this way? And I guess the real question is, does it matter? Because when you look at the, uh, the Google AI product studio, there's, there's issues with product photography because they're often small and you often have a shallow depth of field. And that means that, you know, they use an example where uh, you might have a, a blurry cell phone picture and it can dramatically in improve that. Or the depth of field is shallow, that part of the product is sharp and part of it is soft. And it'll understand the edges of, you know, a bottle of shampoo and crisp them up. And... I, does does that change things for me? I, I think I like that. Uh, you can change the entire setup in the scenario. You could have that bottle of shampoo or yogurt, for all it matters, uh, in a beautiful scene on a wooden coaster with trees in behind and generate this beautiful product photo that honestly is going to put product photographers out of business. But have AI in terms of uh, writing uh, you know, text has already put a lot of people out of business. It's put, uh, It's changing things. Does it... I don't think that's a change for the worst. If you're a product photographer, you need to adapt and you need to utilize these tools. You'll probably still find a job. Um, and the fact that you're creating a fake stage for a product, I've seen people doing that on Amazon very, very poorly for a decade. Um, so tools to improve that? Sure. Why not? That's fine. But when it comes down to the artistic intent of a content creator for the purposes of art, for the purposes of photojournalism, for the purposes of depicting reality, uh, I think that we've crossed a line here, and I'm not happy about it. But there's no going back. And so there, I think there needs to be a way for us as photographers to understand the, the reality check of what we create. And I think there should be more of uh, an initiative for photographers that take that really great shot to take a step back, take their smartphone out of their pocket and take a picture of the scene with their phone and the camera in it uh, as some evidence, some proof that what you are doing is actually real. Because I think that the general trust in what we see is going to erode very quickly over the next year. There is so much to unpack in what you just said that I, I'm not sure I even know where to begin. Let's start with the 
you know, sanctity of the raw file. And if you're in a competition, are they going to ask for raw files? Well, when I've judged competitions, every single time there are different categories. And there are certain categories that have more restrictive processing rules, rules, photojournalism, than other categories, landscape. In a landscape shot, in most competitions, they don't necessarily care if you swap out the sky because the day you were there, it was nothing but gray. In photojournalism, you can't do that. We've never asked for the raw files, but I could see in those types of categories that competitions will start needing to see the raw files depending on the the representative end use, i.e. photojournalism, or in real life, photojournalism. There are photographers that have lost their jobs and reputations by shooting for major news outlets and faking an image. But how is that news outlet necessarily going to know now? Now, the nice thing is you mentioned that Adobe in the generative AI had trained it arguably, for lack of a better phrase, ethically. The generative fill in Adobe supports their, what they call AI ethics principles. In other words, it supports what they call content credentials. I have so many questions on that. A, I can put metadata in my image now, but if I upload it to certain social media sites, no names being mentioned, that's all stripped out. If these content credentials are embedded in the metadata, well, that's useless to me at that point anyway. But when you get to what Google is doing and specifically saying that, you know, it can help you deal with expensive and time-consuming professional photographers, I, I, yeah, at that point, look, we're here. This is going to happen. You're not going to stop it. You can, I, I see so many people bitch and moan about, AI and what it's going to do to the photography industry, it's already doing it to the photography industry. The cat's out of the bag. Mid-journey, you're not going to suddenly shut down mid-journey. And if you want to, I would argue you're borderline you know, nuts. You can be afraid of it, but you're going to have to adapt. Here's my big problem, though. Okay. The, the author of this article made a comment, the, the, the one about uh, Google Studio, made a comment that Photographers that are taking, quote, general photos, stock photography, product photography, they're at risk from things like this Google Studio. He's probably correct there. But he says the following, and I greatly disagree with this. Product Studio is aimed at small, independent sellers, and Google is trying to help these small-time players And it's doubtful, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, and it's doubtful that there are many professionals out there making their living from small merchants. No, that's insane. First of all, there are some pros that do nothing but small businesses and small people like that that are local photographers. And more importantly, there is no way, just like big companies, when Microstock came out, didn't continue to buy expensive stock. They started buying Microstock too. Microstock uh, as well, they yeah, started. But, but using- Steve, I, I just I, I want to interject. Regardless of what Google intends for this to be used for, I think this is the point that you might be trying to get to. Their intent is for those small businesses, those mom and pop shops, those Etsy sellers. Everybody's so going to use this. Exactly. Everybody's going to use it. Everybody's going to use this. That's where I think he's wrong. This is not going to be small mom pops that are taking f- fake photos. I guarantee you, Fortune 500 company designers that are on staff 
are going to go, you know, instead of hiring a new photographer for this campaign, what do we have in the archives that we can modify with AI? Yep. And, and I can see that this being an advantage, say you want to run an ad in, uh, in a number of magazines, okay? And you want to advertise some new cosmetic product, for example. Uh, you can use the same source material, uh, you know, a bare basic white background version of your product, feed that into a platform that generates an entirely different surrounding uh, based on the sensibilities of the magazine that it's going into with the click of a button that doesn't cost you anything for numerous set designers and so on and so forth. Um, and that, who knows, that might have already been happening for years. But Steve, I, I got to ask, um, when it comes down to the... Um, the finality of all of this, the fact that reality is changing and there's nothing that the end consumer can do or the commercial entities that are creating this software are necessarily bound by. Is it time that there are laws enacted that require these types of uh, reality bending tools uh, that their end product be identified when it's shared in any type of publication? Because I've got a feeling that I, I can't remember. I, I think I remember reading that some country has passed some provisionary law uh, requiring this to be identified in social media and in print. But is it time that we get some, some legislation that can have actionable consequences if it's found to be in violation, if you're using these tools and not declaring it? Do, do we need that at this point? Wow. Yes. And, and I would argue, if you're on social media right now and you're sharing a link to a product on Amazon, and that link is your affiliate account, you have to label that it's an affiliate link. Which in is the fair. United States. The, yeah. That, in the U.S. That you're going to make, uh, yeah, or any one given place, if it exists anywhere to me, that, that's, that's a valid argument. You have to declare that. I'm going to make some money off of this. I know that there are laws that have been passed around you know, photoshopping models to look fake that you have to in some way identify that that model has been, you know, greatly changed. I think that it is fair to say, or for example, on YouTube, I have to identify if I've got anything in that particular video that is quote unquote, a paid advertisement, which doesn't necessarily mean any money exchanged hands at all. If I was giving something for free, if I got anything for value, I've got to declare that. This, which will bend the reality that people believe, should definitely be identified. Do I think that will happen anytime soon? Oh, no. <laughs> but it should. All right. Well, um, let's talk about uh, bending light in interesting ways, because the next story uh, comes from a camera that is uh, available on Kickstarter right now. The F-Zero camera, quote, breaks the laws of physics. I hate hyperbole like that, um, by shooting F0.3 to F0.6. So, I mean, this is not necessarily new technology, uh, and it all has to go with how an aperture is calculated based on, uh, you know, the size of uh, the focal length of your lens and the, the size of the opening and the size of the film plane and how you can adjust and massage these numbers to create um, alternative truths uh, to the uh, reality of what these numbers traditionally would mean in a concrete form. 
So yes, you're you're bending the math a bit uh, by putting the numbers together in a different formula. But Steve, what is this camera and why is it neat? First of all, it's not breaking the laws of physics. My <laughs> God, man. It's literally using the laws of physics to, to, to reach its end goal, not breaking them. So it's a really interesting device once you look at it. It is three pieces of machined metal. <clears throat> excuse me. On a monorail. With, on a monorail. The monorail is not, you, you have to pay for your own rail. The rail is not included in the Kickstarter. But in between those three pieces of machined metal, the front one being an objective lens, the middle one being an 8 by 10 what they call intermediate sensor, and the back one, they call it a taking camera carrier, which is really just, it's the piece you mount your camera to. So your camera's in the back. You have bellows that go from small to large to the intermediate sensor, and then go from that intermediate sensor back down again to the objective lens. This setup gives you effectively 500 millimeters at f4.5. But the thing is, normally when you have a 500 millimeter lens at f4.5, it's big on the front end, and it projects down into a smaller area for a camera sensor. This one is reversing that it's projecting to a larger area. By doing that first and then shrinking it down to meet the camera uh, input, you're effectively getting 65 millimeters at 0.06 with a 0.13 crop factor. The thing to me about this, it's existed, like you said, this this has existed in a do. I, I have a Metabones speed booster. Okay, so I can take my EF lenses, and it's a full frame, uh, you know, lens that is then adapted with optics down to a micro four thirds, and you get, uh, as its name implies, a boost to whatever your effective uh, aperture is going to be on that smaller sensor. It's the same principles here, right? The, the, but the key here is this is turnkey. It's expensive as hell if you get the turnkey version, but it's turnkey. I will say, I just want to take this out and use it somewhere because it looks really cool. It looks like so, imagine standing I mean, in a park doing portraits with this. Please, I want to do it. It could have a lot of fun. Now, I think that they they've missed a couple of key, uh, you know, potential improvements on this. It does not look because this this resembles a lot um, like a a large format camera. And large format cameras would often have uh, swivel and tilt mechanisms to shift your focal plane and do some really fun stuff with a shallow depth of field and that that format was traditionally known for. I don't see any tilt or shift mechanisms being allowed, at least in its initial configuration, which then limits some of the creative input that you could uh, come up with. No, no, no. That's not necessarily true. The turnkey system, no. But there is a DIY system that doesn't include lenses, doesn't include the bellows, or doesn't include the carrying case. If you don't have the bellows in there, could you not DIY yourself something that included that? The, the base of these three platforms would have to be able to be mounted in such a way that then can spin side to side. So it would have to have a central point of contact that was adjustable or to bend forward and backward, which means there'd have to be a hinge or something. And yes, you can probably modify it, but you would have to go above and beyond. I'm looking at the back two 
um, elements here that are on a board and it looks like there's at least two screws that are holding each of them down in a solid position, which means that a swivel mount would not be possible unless you completely tear it apart and re-engineer it. So I, it, it's within the realm of possibility right. if you wanted to make your own. Why are the back two, I never noticed that. Why are the back two seemingly mounted to the same plate and the front one is not because the front one can move forward and back on its own which is how you achieve focus so if you wanted to do a landscape okay. uh, image you would have the the uh, objective lens closer to the mid plane on this which is technically the original focal plane that we're dealing with uh, right. and if you wanted to shoot a portrait you'd move that lens further away from the focal plane. This is how bellows would have worked on an original camera. Uh, this is how extension tubes work. When you uh, are you know, trying to focus closer with a macro lens, if you put that in, it's like a fixed length bellows that shifts your focal range further forward. And so that's that's your focusing mechanism, I believe there. But then the distance between uh, the, looks like a Fresnel lens, uh, a, probably a fairly well-made one, and the taking camera on the backside, that should be fixed in the design spec. What, what did you think of the result? I think it's beautiful, but I think that you can achieve similar results with much less, uh, you know, expense and uh, MacGyvering of light. You know, the, the idea here is... You, you can you can do a lot, like um, Lyoa has their Argus lenses, which are f0.95, and they've got a 35 and a 45 in full frame. And I can take that and shrink that down using a Metabone Speed Booster on a smaller camera and be shooting into the f0. Point something range. Uh, and, and I could get a very similar effect with that, with something that looks much more pedestrian. But then again... The idea that you're going after here, and this kind of goes back to the first story, is you're, you're modifying reality, right? Like we don't see the world the way that this camera is portraying the lights in the background. And that's always been a part of photography and cinema is how a camera can see things differently than human vision and how that can be aesthetically pleasing to the end result. But there's a lot of different ways for you to achieve that in camera. Uh, without going to this level of extreme. I've got some old vintage lenses, some old triplet projector lenses that I've used for some macro photography because it has a soap bubble bokeh effect. There's a lot of older lenses that can achieve very unique optical looks uh, without the need to go to something quite as gargantuan as this. So Steve, when, when you're trying to be creative uh, with background lighting or with depth of field, I mean, is, is there a go-to lens that you've used that uh, always gives you something that, that's pleasing, or is it just uh, a constant experimentation? It, it Kind of a constant experimentation. I mean, I still am one of those people who I love shooting, thinking of shooting a person in this particular case. Uh, when I'm doing some kind of a portrait, I love like a 100 macro, like a you know Canon 100 macro 2.8. Uh, I love that lens for this, but I don't get, like there's one there's one test image in here that really sticks out to me and it's the one with the young lady in the sweatshirt she's looking camera left and you've got a 1.2 depth of field it's a Canon R6 Mark II at 50 millimeters with a 1.2 uh aperture and it's nice and then you get the F0 camera 
And really, honestly, what it does with those strings of lights behind her is, in and of itself, AI-generated artwork. Well, I, I say it's not because you are bending light, and and that's you're you're playing on physics and and not the computational element of things. I'm, I'm and so it it, it yeah, throws them further out of focus. But still, now how could you have done that if, if this is a posed image? simply move the model further away from the lights in the background, you'd get the same effect. Uh, or, But you uh, may not I, have that room. You might not. Uh, this, is, this is true. But I've, I've also, uh, it was my, my stepsister's wedding. I rented the Canon 85mm f1.2 lens, and it was just absolutely remarkable, the effect that I was able <laughs> to get with that lens at that time. Uh, and, uh, it was always too expensive for me to buy cause I, I don't shoot a lot of that stuff on a professional basis, but I was able to get results very similar to this with that particular lens. And, and there's other options out there. You can go, uh, is if you want exactly this effect and exactly this scenario with the cumbersome attachments and focus, uh, then yeah, sure. Y- you got it. it. It'll work for you. But if you want that interesting background and bokeh. There's a lot of different ways to get it, so long as you understand the physics that isn't being broken in this scene, and it's yours to bend uh, as we are photographers and light benders in the process. Uh, By the way, I should state that the Kickstarter comes out on May 30th. It's not out at the time of this recording. Uh, Early bird price will be $9.49 for the full camera kit, uh, which is a savings off of the nearly $2,000 retail price. Well, the early bird Kickstarter is nine forty nine. The standard Kickstarter is twelve ninety nine, and then retail will be nineteen ninety nine. There is the DIY system, starts three seventy nine. Yeah, yeah, for early bird, then four ninety nine for Kickstarter, and six ninety nine for retail. But again, no lenses, bellows, or case. Uh, let me ask you something though. Obviously, the tripod that's being used in in this article pictures, you know, these marketing pictures, isn't included, but the slider rail isn't included. And that actually surprises me. If you're going to market this as it's a turnkey system, why not just include that piece of metal? And I I don't know exactly if it says in the article, maybe I missed it, what model it is and who manufactures the rail. Um, Because it looks like the way the the, the rollers uh, that control the position of the different elements as they move along this rail are designed specifically for this type of rail. And I don't know if that's a standard uh, or if it's a proprietary design that has to be uh, specifically included. You're right. It seems like a weird omission here that, um, that I don't know, when we see the final Kickstarter launch, maybe they will have changed that and had that as an option or an add-on. Or it's Kickstarter. Do a Kickstarter package that you can get it with the rail or without the rail. I think that it might be a Kickstarter rule that you can't sell something on Kickstarter that is already manufactured and is somebody else's product. So that you can sell your own thing, but if this is already a retail available right. item, you can't sell that on Kickstarter. That might be the reason. Makes sense. There. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. The next story comes. uh, Yeah, kind of. I mean, it'll be a great conversation piece nonetheless. Uh, Next story comes in three parts. Uh, An interesting uh, narrative that plays out across (laughs) them. Uh, All from Petapixel, our good friends there. Story number one. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram and others, um, completes another round of layoffs in its, quote, year of efficiency. Story number two. 
Shutterstock to acquire Jiffy or Giphy uh, from Meta for $53 million. And story number three, Meta issued a record-breaking $1.3 billion fine for mishandling data. Okay. Um, It seems as though if the headlines alone are the indicating factor that this company might be circling the drain. What do you think? So, yes, you are right. Normally, if headlines would be any indication then if Zuckerberg read these three headlines over coffee, he should start making phone calls going, what did I miss? But the (laughs) truth is they've got so much money. I think that they'll survive this, I would argue, unfortunately, in some ways. I don't even know what story to start with. I mean, if you, if you do the the round of layoffs story as, as the first focus point, calling it year of efficiency, which is Zuckerberg's, you know, term is so disingenuous at best. They're laying off tens of thousands of people. And I understand you want to spin it, but these are humans that worked hard. This is happening all over the tech space. Well, so uh, Apple, much less with Apple, uh, but still. Yeah. Zuckerberg cut 11 million jobs uh, in November, and it's estimated that another 10,000 uh, jobs. 11,000, not million. 11,000, not 11 million. Um, yeah, they're not that say, big. He cut uh, Switzerland. <laughs> uh, 11,000 in November and then uh, 10,000 in, uh, you know, we're, we're still to come. But, you know, we're, we're looking at these these jobs that, is this efficiency? And what is efficiency looking like for these very big companies that are, I guess, depending more and more on the tools that we've just been talking about, the AI tools. Do you need customer support, which has always been rare and elusive with meta companies to begin with, uh, ever getting an actual physical person to interact with you? But how much of the content moderation stuff behind the scenes no longer has to be done uh, by an individual person? And the tools to recognize things like um, violent crimes, drug abuse, uh, you know, child pornography, etc., no longer have to be done by a physical person and can be done by algorithms that might be periodically checked by an actual person upon uh, some sort of appeal process, which then could even be an automated process in and of itself using a different looser algorithm. Yeah, but, you, you know, if you look at Twitter where Elon has you know, laid off, fired uh, the majority of the staff there to the point where there is no PR staff, for example. If you send an email to PR, you get a poop emoji back, basically, <laughs> even though it's a valid request. I've seen the difference in Instagram. I get tagged regularly by spam accounts, and I report them. And it yep. used to be I would report them, and a week later I'd get a notice that, hey, we've, we've addressed your concern, and we've taken that content down. I, over the past week, have gotten five replies, all saying, because of how busy we are, we are not able to take this down. Here are some ways that you can protect yourself. So I'm seeing the difference. Yeah. And I think, I think arguably the, the, the areas that they are, are doing these layoffs for all of these companies in general, no, it's not efficiency, it's money saving, and it's giving yourselves more overhead uh, or less overhead. And we all know that payroll is always one of the largest areas of, of overhead. But 
you know, again, do I think it's a, a good thing, not just from the human factor, but from a pure business factor? No, I ate at a restaurant tonight and it took me to get two tacos for my wife and a couple of tacos for me. It took over 30 minutes to get our food after we ordered it. And it took uh, 25 minutes to get the two drinks that we ordered. Having staff has a purpose. And yep. when you're in a business that is serving customers, which let's be honest, that's what, what Meta is doing, that matters. This one's interesting, though, because this does tie into the fine that you mentioned. Yep. This is almost entirely the Irish workforce that's being affected by the latest round of layoffs, which is related to that $1.3 billion fine. So what is the fine for from the European Union regulators, Steve? So Ireland's Data Protection Commission claims that Facebook is doing, specifically, by the way, we should probably mention, this is Facebook. This fine is Facebook, none of the other properties. Could they then add another fine for Instagram? Very definitely. Possibly, Based yeah. on what's happening. So companies that operate internationally have certain processes involved. It could be CSAM scanning, which is, you know, uh, sexual content scanning. Yep, yep. That is done in data centers. You talked about a lot of these companies are replacing some of these things with AI. Those have to be done in data centers. And a lot of times those data centers are US-based. Well, Meta was transferring the data of EU citizens from Meta Ireland to the US for processing. They were not leaving it there that we know of, but they probably truthfully were. They're round-tripping it to do process on this. Ireland's Data Protection Commission claims that violates, we all remember, GDPR. Yep. And they're claiming and that it... Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, no. Uh, the fact that you're sending data um, and then doing something to it and then sending it back, even if you're not storing it on a permanent basis, the fact that it's gone somewhere and for any period of time has existed there, has been modified or analyzed in some way before some result is sent back, whether it's the original data or um, some decision made on what has been analyzed from that data. Uh, and I, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I've got a feeling that that would be a gross violation of the General Data Protection Regulation. I totally agree. But what's interesting is where this kind of came from. A lot of this is stemming from way back, what was it, 2013 or whatever, Edward Snowden. Yep. So with the Snowden revelations, other countries have seen what the U.S. does in terms of its surveillance practices and how it surveils EU citizens and citizens around the world. That really is where the big concern of this was, is look, if you're sending our data from Ireland to the U.S. for whatever reason, that could be a problem because the U.S. government could use it to surveil our citizens. What's hilarious here, though, is they have a five-month grace period to comply which will almost render it mute because the EU and the U.S. are working on new rules for data transfer that could be in place as early as summer and as late as October. So pretty close to that five-month leeway period. There could be new rules anyway, and Meta is going to uh, appeal. So, 
Yeah, I, I can understand that. I mean, this is a fine, but you can appeal that. You can take that to court uh, and possibly get those decisions reversed. And and obviously, they're going to be fighting this as much as they can because you know, one point three billion U.S. dollars is not a small amount of money, especially considering that uh, Meta has just sold a company that they acquired three years ago, I think, Jiffy, um, and rumored to have acquired it for around four hundred million dollars. And the sale uh, price of, was uh, $53 million in cash. And oh so not a great investment. Uh, but I mean, this just kind of shows you that that Meta as a company, I didn't even realize that they had bought Jiffy, to be honest. It, it, I didn't either. Story didn't come across my, my radar. But the idea that the company is just willing to throw hundreds of millions of dollars on something and take massive losses uh, I mean, why didn't they just not keep it? I, I don't know. Maybe they could. This this was uh, again overseas regulators. This time, the UK effectively forced them to sell this. Right. Yes, I did read that. Now that I've here's uh, my question to you because I think you'll I think you'll be able to to decipher this, and I have not been able to. Why did Shutterstock want Giphy? Like I is don't it Giphy or is it Jiffy, Steve? The question of the technically it would be technically it would be Jiffy, uh, because the person who created the GIF says that it was GIF, not <laughs> GIF. But you know whatever. I don't get the purchase. It's not even Shutterstock says at least in the first year it's not going to make them a lot of money. It, they will get an increase, a rather large increase in daily active users. But that's not going to add a lot of revenue. I use, I have used, if I'd known Meta owned it, I probably wouldn't have. But I've used Jiffy before. And, and for I those don't that don't. For it. Yeah, for, for those that don't know what Jiffy is, uh, I'll read from the article. Jiffy describes itself as a social platform and search engine that allows users to discover, share, and save. GIF's digital stickers and videos was launched in 2013 and is now one of the world's most visited websites and has raised over $150 million throughout its existence. The company's monetary strategy is murky, but Jiffy claims that it makes money at best, uh, claims that it makes money by helping create as well as promote sponsored GIFs. Uh, the content is sometimes created in cooperation with its own design studio, it explains, which is, that's not telling me much of anything, except that it so is a GIF repository. why does want it? Um, maybe it gains the ownership of the GIFs that it creates, and then... Shutterstock as a company obviously is involved in licensing of images, but could also be involved in license enforcement. And so that means that uh, companies like uh, any stock photo agency, let's just say Getty, for example, uh, Getty has been bad at this, where they will send uh, demand letters for copyright infringement to people that have been uh, misusing images that would have been exclusive uh, available on Getty. And Getty's, I mean, I don't want to go too far into the weeds on that, but they were sending out uh, demand letters for people that were using images put in the public domain and so on and so forth. There's an industry around that. So uh, one potential here, especially knowing how widespread GIF usage is on social media, especially Twitter and Facebook uh, and all of that, that if Shutterstock gains ownership of GIFs that were created by the platform, they could potentially uh, pursue infringement on uh, commercial uses of that work in certain contexts. Will they? 
I don't know. Because, uh, you know, you could get grilled in the court of public opinion pretty quickly on something like that. But they would have the ownership of that and thereby uh, own the copyrights for whatever reason, I'm not sure. They're going to have to do a lot of enforcement to get an ROI on their $53 million. Yep. Because they don't want their $53 million back. You don't, you don't spend as a business $53 million to get $53 million back. You spend yeah. $53 million to get $200 million back. Well, uh, and who knows what other uh, assets the company has. Maybe there's technology behind the scenes. Maybe there's patents. There, there could be some value that we are unable to see on the surface that they are then able to leverage in the future. And um, I mean, Shutterstock as a company, I'm sure has bought up a whole bunch of smaller companies in the past and brought them into the fold. And sometimes it could even be for the engineering talent at a company in order to work them into other services that uh, they might be planning to expand onto. That's that's also... Uh, what? Yeah, that's yeah. what's called an aqua hire. So you acquire that's the right. company to get the, the staff. Interesting thing, though, I just have to say, because Don, when he sends me the stories we're going to talk about, he gives his notes. And one of the things he said on these three stories connected was the news this week seals the deal. Meta is done. I completely agree. There will be a day that Meta will go the way of AOL. In fact, to many people, Meta is the same as AOL. It is what many people consider to be the internet that are embedded in that, that uh, Facebook ecosystem. It's not going to be anything soon. Arguably, it's not going to be soon enough, but you can tell what I think about Facebook. But uh, someday, I think, yes, if this company doesn't pivot hard and get uh, a, a, a CEO that has some ethics, could there be a problem? Yeah, but I don't think it's, anything's going to happen to Meta anytime soon. None of this. Well, I when I say that it's done, I, I basically I, I'm. I'm seeing a trend here that I believe to be irreversible. And I'm not going to say that it's going to happen this year or next or five years from now, but sort of like the slow decline of AOL. That was a great uh, analogy. Um, I still have, I get a, a, the occasional email from somebody with an at AOL.com email address. It's still, it's still there. It, it, it is in existence in some form, but it, it is done as the juggernaut it once was. I have people call the radio station and win contests from me. And when I'm getting their information, they'll say, you know, whatever their name might be, Bobby John at AOL.com. And almost every time the thought that hits my my head is, oh, you're the one. <laughs> you're the, you're <laughs> yep. the one that's still left using AOL. Well, I don't know how many of us are, are left buying magazines these days or any of the old uh forms of media. But this one, I mean, we talked about it last week because the Bebop channel bought Matterhorn Media and all of its assets and closed down Imaging Resource. And uh, then I saw this other article pop up that was somewhat related. Uh, also on Petapixel, outdoor photographer, quote, grossly mismanaged as contributors go unpaid for months. And I thought to myself, huh, I mean, right when I moved to Bulgaria, I was in contact with uh, Matavor Media for an article that was going to be published in Outdoor Photographer in their April of 2022 issue. And so we were working on that over the winter. I was still buying and assembling furniture at the time and setting up my business. And, and so I didn't actually follow up. I sent them all the forms that they requested and the payment uh, information and everything else. And I've looked back through 
my uh, bank statements and records. They never paid me either. Uh, so this is unfortunate. And I, I reached out to, to Petapixel, to the, uh, one of their editors there, to ask, okay, well, do you have a contact information? Uh, because obviously they were interviewing uh, the, the people in charge. I got an email address. I sent an email and crickets. So yeah. that's my story. Uh, why don't you fill in people on, on what the, the whole bulk of this is for others as well? It's interesting to me that you say you found that you hadn't been paid because when this first broke, and I could be wrong here. So Rick, if I say this and I'm wrong, I apologize. I'm pretty sure that somebody shared this story and our mutual friend Rick Salmon replied that they had not paid him for a job long ago as well. The new owner Bebop Corp, which again, bought Matavor, uh, what makes this story weird to me, look, I, I understand companies that struggle, websites in today's day and age that struggle, also struggle not to just pay their bills, but to pay their vendors, their contributors. I understand that that happens. But the CEO and artistic director of Bebop, which is Gregory Charles Royal, <laughs> is basically blaming the photographers. And what's funny is, I don't agree with him. I don't disagree with him either. I mean, if it's really your bottom line and how you're paying your mortgage and you invoiced outdoor photographer in August of last year, and we're at the end of May of this year, and you haven't followed up on it and really pushed it, and you continued after that to write articles for them, which is what his argument is. One of the quotes that he said is, why on earth would you continue to work for a company that was not paying you? And he's, that's a valid point. It is. And the you know what? I should have been more diligent in my pursuit of, of that money. I agree, except you didn't write them articles after that. Like no, if no, it was just the one. They weren't paying you. There's a point where you say, I'm not going to write for you anymore. And I think my most point would be would. immediately in, unless I got payment. He's being, he's being flippant here to me. And I think so. It, it, it's not right because this isn't people who wrote five articles when they didn't get paid for the first and kept writing. These are people who some of them wrote one article with their photos in it that deserve thousands of dollars and never got paid for one. You can't blame them for that. Did you see the sale offer he gave though? Oh yeah. They actually so, ran ads. So they ran ads. Things. So, um, so, Mr. Royal shared a banner advertisement, which they have below in the article, and his company is currently running on several publications that Bebop now owns, which is offering the, quote, as-is bundle of Digital Photo Pro Imaging Resource. Good to see that they're in there, I guess. Uh, Digital Photo Image Creators Network and Outdoor Photographer for half a million bucks. Willing to offload- as is. Uh, as is. Now that should scream red flags because now they're looking at this and saying- uh, we can't handle the liabilities that are associated with these companies. We want to offload those liabilities to somebody else because of all of these. I mean, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, but we at least know that there are unpaid contributors. Yes. And what's funny is, you know, he's saying, I'm not holding my breath that the photo community will pool their money together and buy these properties that 
they really care about and are complaining that we shut down when these properties were losing money. There was no reason for us to keep them open. But here's the, the weird thing to me. He is claiming that he is going to honor, which he kind of has to. He bought a company. He assumed the debt of that company, right? He's claiming that he is going to pay those people that are in the rears on what they're owed over time. But what a lot of the photographers are reporting is that they are getting $15, $20 a week. And at that rate, it would take like two years to pay them. Yeah. Not, now, it's, it's not good. Um, I'd love to hear a lawyer's take on this. I, I would too. And I think that there, you'd have to review the purchasing contract, I think, uh, with one of these agreements because uh, Matavor Media was was bought in whole. It's not like it was bought, like they bought an asset from another company. It's not like Jiffy being sold from Meta to Shutterstock, um, where you could have some language in there that puts the liability for some of these things on the uh, on the seller, not the purchaser. And that can be all part of the, the contract negotiations. And I'm not sure exactly what's legal to put in that or not, but we don't get to see that. Uh, and so again, I'm not a lawyer, don't know how that all works, but I do know that I am out. It's not a whole lot of money. It's 500 bucks. And it was for a quick article and they ran a couple of images and I, but I would really like to have my $500, um, right. you know, as, as a content creator, as somebody that, uh, you know, I, I don't get a lot of requests for traditional media in terms of print. Uh, I get more so documentary film work and, and oftentimes they'll pay me in advance for, for that, which is great. But, uh, you know, give everybody what they're owed, Bebop. Every penny, well, you know, just clean this up. And there, there is something that I probably am going to regret bringing this up, but it needs to be addressed. And that is a, n- a number of these people that haven't been paid, it's been months, a year, years that they haven't been paid. And yet, this outlet continued to work and publish articles. In this particular article on Petapixel, there are people being quoted, you know, saying, I worked with some amazing editors and, uh, you know, that type of a thing. But the truth of the matter is, those editors had to at some point know that their contributors were not being paid. Because the contributors probably said, hey, Johnny, that article I wrote for you, I haven't been paid yet. Oh, really? Let me check on it. Yeah. The management at all levels at some point had to know that this outlet was not taking care of business and yet continued to solicit contributors to contribute, probably knowing they may not get paid. And those people, I do think, if I'm being unfair, I'd love to hear you chime in and say something. Because to me, there should have been a point where you told those vendors, I need you to write an article for me, but I can't guarantee that you'll get paid. The problem here is the reputational damage that, uh, I mean, we're we're talking specifically about outdoor photographer. I don't know about any of the other Matavor properties. Uh, There's no information in this article to specifically identify them other than they're trying to be sold as a lot together as is, uh, which might be an indicator. It might not be, but you know, you look at the reputation of outdoor photographer, unless bebop cleans this up and pays everybody what they're owed. Uh, the news of this 
is going to prevent them from getting decent contributors in the future. Uh, any previous contributor will be hesitant to, uh, to to go into this. And even in the past episode, before I realized this whole thing, I said, you know what, if they were in trouble and they needed uh, a sales increase in order to stay in business, I might have bought a couple of issues uh, or a subscription just to help them out. Not anymore. This is not the kind of business uh, that I would like to be supporting because I like to support my fellow photographers that are getting paid and not companies that are, I don't want to say preying on them is not the, the right term, but knowingly not paying people over an extended period of time seems like it becomes habitual at that point. And that means you're taking advantage of these people if you're not following through with your process of paying people what they're worth, what you've established contractually, what they are worth, and then just not delivering on that when they delivered the content to you. There's a lot of blame to go around with the original owners, not again, taking care of business with the new owners being somewhat insulting to those people that were victims of that business, not being run properly granted wasn't being run properly, but you did your due diligence before you bought it. You knew what you were taking on. If you if you honestly bought it and didn't realize that it was being mismanaged, that's still on you, right? Yeah. I mean, that's business 101 or acquisition 101. So there's a lot of blame to go around. The, the, the only hope here is <clears throat> that perhaps even as a group, these contributors can get together and get paid. I and maybe so. the more it's talked about, that could happen. That's why I'm talking about it. So let's uh, let's hope that uh, we're amplifying the signal there a little bit. Speaking of that, I want to amplify your signal a little bit, Steve. Uh, now that we've gotten through our stories, where can people find you and your lovely podcasts and your musings on social media, etc.? I am at Steve Brazel pretty much everywhere. It's uh, I, I don't use Facebook really, but I am on Instagram at Steve Brazel. It's like the country Brazil, but two L's. I'm on Twitter at Steve Brazel. I'm on Mastodon at Steve Brazel, which I'm actually loving. And the website for me, my portfolio is at stevebrazel.com. The podcast is Behind the Shot, and that's at behindtheshot.tv. Don's been on a number of times. We're going to do another show with him actually coming up pretty quick. And uh, yeah, just check it out. Find me. The, the, the podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts in audio only or video. And of course, the video is also on Behind the Shot on YouTube. Have you done the YouTube podcasting thing yet, Steve? There's a couple of channels that it flagged as being podcast capable. I have not, and I'll tell you why. I actually, to uh, somebody who deals from within YouTube, I messaged them and I never heard back. I don't want, I don't know if YouTube is submitting these quote unquote podcast feeds to podcast feeds, right? In right. other words, it could show up in iTunes or it could show up in Google Podcasts or it could show up on Spotify or, or if they ever do that in the future, I don't want to start it and have them do that because that would dilute my normal podcast feed. I have two podcast feeds now, video and audio only. I don't need another one that's based, basically what YouTube's doing with podcasts is your playlists, each individual playlist can become what YouTube calls a podcast that people can subscribe to. I don't want that individual playlist of, you know, 
whatever, image critiques to end up in podcast apps competing right. with myself. Yeah. So I have well, not. Have have you? No, no, but I, I barely use YouTube as a as a platform anyhow. So it's not something that I've looked seriously at. But maybe in the future, if this becomes a video thing, if you just want to see talking heads, uh, we've done some live in the past and that was fun. But with the time zone differences, it's a little bit difficult to, to do that uh, for an appreciable audience. But hey, who knows? I'll just wait and see how it develops and evolves. And uh, maybe it'll be something for me in the future. But let's get into our yeah. picks of the week. Uh, and I've got one that, um, you know, I just wanted to throw it out there because if you're a science nerd like I am, you might care about a gigantic science-y, it, it kind of reads like a textbook, don't get me wrong. And there's maths in here that I'm not, I'm not going to understand the equations. But the idea of this book is an in-depth look at snowflakes. And of course, you might know that I'm a somewhat familiar with the subject. Some of my images are in this book uh, called Snow Crystals, A Case Study in Spontaneous Structure Formation by Kenneth G. Liebrecht, who, by the way, Ken wrote the foreword to my book on snowflakes, and we've been great pals ever since. Uh, I run different ideas uh, of uh, practical snowflakes physics as I observe them past him, and he comes up with all of the molecular formulas and exactly how uh, you know pointed arrowhead crystals form with a repeating pattern from a, a variance that just kind of gets picked up and run like a zipper, and he puts all those formulas into this book. And some of it, I, I don't think I'll, I'll ever properly comprehend, but I can flip to a page in this thing. And I can glean a little bit of the physics of the universe uh, in a very small and simple way and get at least some understanding. The images in here are great, including some that are mine. Uh, but it's just a fun little uh, read. The problem is it's expensive. Uh, you want to get a hardcover copy of this book. It's 110 bucks. They do have some used ones on Amazon for uh, about $75. But the amount of content in here uh, again, designed more for a scientific mind is just phenomenal. Uh, I find it humorous that the Kindle edition is more expensive than the hardcover. Which is weird. <laughs> it's weird. I don't know. It's backwards. Uh, it is backwards. Uh, the hardcover edition is just brilliant. I like it. Snow Crystals from Kenneth G. Liebrecht is my pick of the a week. A definitive new investigation of the science of snowflakes. It's it's like his magnum that. opus. I mean, he's he's a professor at Caltech, and he's a tenured professor there, and he does some really great stuff. Um, you know, the last season of Snowflakes that I had photographed, I had come up with some really interesting observations that seemed to indicate that snowflakes could grow inward in ways that previously were not predicted. And... I think Ken doesn't like me talking about those things because he didn't put it in this book that he's considering his swan song, like his, his final thing. And then I discovered something that, not saying that anything in the book is inaccurate, but that there could be an additional uh, angle to, to look at things and to see how these things grow. That's just from my own observations. Ken's the expert and he's got everything buttoned down perfectly in that book on snowflakes. And it is going to be a reference guide for me when I eventually do a sequel to my book on the subject. And and we should say we're recording this at uh, 12.30 in the morning, my time on May 26th. And Amazon, where I am, says that there are only six left in stock. So if you want to grab a book, I don't know, Ken, but let's sell this thing out for him. Yeah. Right? Um, if you want to grab a book, there's only six. Go grab one quick. Princeton University Press put this out, and I got to... <laughs> 
I got to imagine that uh, Princeton U probably doesn't print these in best-selling type volumes. Uh, so yeah, get one while you can. I think it's going to be a great read. And, and just like all things, if if they don't do uh, another production run, and they might be able to ship more to Amazon. Uh, but if with this type of thing, once they're sold out, they're sold out. And the cost will go up exponentially. Um, one of uh, Japanese physicist um, uh, Nakaya published a book on snowflakes in the 1950s. And I was finally able to find a copy of it for like $300 in semi-tattered shape. So um, it's an investment, folks. Let's, uh, let's try to show some love to Ken. I just have to say that would be a great band name. <laughs> semi-tattered. Semi-tattered. Or semi-tattered <laughs> shape. Would be a great uh, band name. I can see the album cover now. So, uh, Steve, your pick is a spreadsheet. I don't think I've ever had a spreadsheet as a pick of the week. Uh, please indulge me. What is this about? So this is, I'm going to say it's the creation of Todd a. Young. Todd is a brilliant music photographer, one of the best out there on the planet. He is a Nikon ambassador, uh, Nikon US ambassador, super nice guy. He has taught music photography for outlets like Creative Live, things like that. He speaks at a lot of the photo shows that happen around the US for, for Nikon. And he created a Discord server for music photographers. Wonderful Discord server I'm in, great conversations, people asking questions and trying to learn and sharing knowledge. And I love being in this group and, and helping people and, and learning. He, one of Todd's things is, and this is particularly true in the, the music photography industry where rates are depressed in many ways. He wanted music photographers, people who photograph concerts or promo shots of, of artists, to have a better insight onto how to charge money what to charge. So he created the music photography rates spreadsheet, which has now morphed. Originally, this was just music photography. You can go in there. There's a form to fill out on a Google form. And you go in, you fill out what you shot. Was it a day rate? How many hours did you put in? Who was the client for? What were the images going to be used for? So that you get a real idea of what that charge got a client. And what they basically say in the about is the intent of this form and data are to give us transparent, a transparent look into photography rates. Well, Todd has now brought in Heather Berry, who has a spreadsheet in this spreadsheet, one of the sheets in this, this spreadsheet for sports photography and Leah Jenkins for TV and film. There's not much in the TV and film one, but the other two are very heavily populated. And it's not just the columns of information that you uh, discussed, Steve. Some of these are really important in terms of, you know, your experience level and the turnaround time. And so you can, yep. if you can find, okay, well, I've got, you know, two years of experience. They need it, you know, same day, uh, you know, based on you know, the, the other, you know, the time, you know, whether it was 2022, 2023, how, you know, current these rates specifically are, the type of client, you can probably find a match in here that somebody else has paid and you can reference that and say, okay, uh, I want to get paid the same or more right. uh, potentially and to not sell yourself short. It's such a beautiful tool. And here's the key thing to me. 
I try and explain to young photographers, in my industry, a lot of people photograph concerts for free. And I try and explain to people, and they say, I'm, I'm photographing at a small club, a local band, and they're broke. Okay, that band, if they needed a new microphone, they're going to go buy it. If they needed yeah. a new pedal for their guitar, they're going to buy it. People spend money on things that further their career. Your job as a business person, not a photographer, is not to try and meet their budget. It's to educate them of the work that your photographs, not you, the work that your photographs will do for them. And this spreadsheet helps you understand when you look through it and hopefully will give people the confidence that have perhaps never charged or undercharged to go, you know what? I can do this. I can charge more. You will find out the rate detail per hour per show, flat rate, duration, size of the venue for the, I'm speaking to the music one, what year this was, who the client was sometimes, what the licensing is. Was it a complete license buyout or was it yeah. for social promotional marketing? What were the deliverables? Were they just turned around or were they edited? How fast did you have to turn them around? Really, honestly, there's some great information in here. And if you've got a job, here's what I would say. If you're a music photographer, a sports photographer, or a TV and film person, contribute your jobs. Let's build this up so that people have a reference to go by to lift all of us up. Because really, as a community, that's what we need to do. We need to educate the new people, get out there in charge, and we need to have the 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 uh, the the old guard help to do that. Yeah, well, and I'm looking at some of the numbers here. I just picked one up um, uh, out of this list. Sports editor editorial gets paid fourteen hundred dollars U.S. a day, ten hours of work for online publication uh, for uh, and they're. They've got expenses. I'm not sure if that means that they're covered or not, but uh, same day delivery. Uh, they've been doing it for 10 years and they get 1400 bucks a day. Uh, and a here's day. another one. Here's a 2003 one shooting for the league, the NBA, 10 hours, 450 a game. Okay. So yeah. there's, a, there's a spread. You can there, find there's a where you fit in here. And it also shows people that get hired, uh, you know, you want to make uh, $80,000 a year as the staff photographer for a professional league working 40 hours a week. That information is also present uh, within this. And and yes, some people are saying that they're getting paid $12 to $20 an hour for high school to minor league stuff. And I think that they are being underpaid, to be honest with you. But uh, you can see the range of what people are willing to accept as payment. And you can use that as a basis, as a starting point to figure out where you need to be. If you're just starting out, incredibly valuable. But if you're already in this business and you're seeing these numbers, you might have to raise your rates because you're not getting paid what you really should be. Exactly. It's just, it to me, it's a great resource. So my hat's off to Tata Young for doing this. Uh, and to those others that have now joined him in in doing the sports and the TV film, to, to Heather and Leah, who I don't know, uh, just really, really good resource for the community as a whole. Awesome. It would be I, interesting uh, to get a sheet in here for commercial work, right? Photojournalism yeah. type work. Documentary I mean, I film stuff. I mean, I, I could contribute yeah. to, to some of those too. I mean, that would kind of fall under TV and film. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the, the idea of... 
of being transparent across this industry is new. Uh, you know, it was kind of a closely guarded secret as to how much you were getting paid for various things before. And it, you're not seeing the names of the photographers here. Um, many times you're not seeing the client, although sometimes that does come in and that could be helpful if you're trying to find a comparative. Um, but uh, this information was never available to anybody, uh, at least in a database like this before it existed. So that's an excellent pick of the week, Steve. And I hope that this continues to get updated uh, and filled out with more, not just more contributors, but more areas of expertise as well. Yep, I agree. All right, that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thanks again, Steve, for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, you're going away for a little bit, but when you're back, I'm going to have you back on First Chance I Get. Sounds good to me. I'm always willing to do this. This is, you know, it's funny. I've been in radio for so long. I do my own podcast. This hour plus whatever with you, whenever we get to do it, is one of the most fun things I get to do because it's a fun banter. And a lot of the times we agree. <clears throat> Periodically, we disagree. I love when we don't because that just makes it so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and I never, I don't harp on you when you're wrong, you know, just because I'm nice. <laughs> Thanks for being nice, Steve. Maybe that's why I keep bringing you back. And thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, you know, this podcast will continue so long as uh, as people will be listening to it. So uh, it's all up to you guys to also provide feedback. If there's anybody that you want me to have on as a guest, if there's any stories that you would like to be covered on an upcoming episode, please reach out and let me know. Contact information is on either my own website at doncom.ca or photogeekweekly.com. The feedback is always appreciated. Again, thanks everyone. It's time to get out and shoot. Mm -hmm.